keep standing just for a moment. When we come into his presence, we sense often our unworthiness to be there. We sense our sin. He's a holy God. And as we come into the holy God's presence, we sense our undoneness, right? So I just want to proclaim over you words of assurance that your sins are forgiven. Maybe just put out your hands, just receive, receive this. Receive his forgiveness. Receive words of assurance. First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Go ahead and confess. Confess your unworthiness. Confess Confess your need of him. Confess that you've messed up maybe and you need, your, you need his cleansing forgiveness. Take a moment and do that. And then receive this word, Romans 8, 1. For there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For there is now, now, no condemnation, none, zero, for those who are in Christ Jesus. You have been justified. You have been declared righteous. You have been forgiven because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Rest in that assurance and believe this promise. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. We're continuing our series on the Gospel of Matthew this morning. We're Matthew chapter 2. Good morning to you. Morning. Great to be together. Take my following story as indicating neutrality in terms of the political affiliation. But in 2008, during Barack Obama's election campaign for president, questions arose about his legitimacy as a candidate. Do you remember this? Some of you do, some of you are a bit young to remember this fiasco. Rumors began to surface that Obama was born in Kenya, not Hawaii, like he claimed, and that therefore he was ineligible to become president in light of Article 2 of the United States Constitution. For one has to be a natural-born citizen of the U.S. to be president. What natural-born means a little bit is up for debate in legal, legal parlance. But anyway, that was, that, was the, that was the assertion that he was illegitimate and didn't qualify. Obama quickly responded by making his short-form birth certificate available to the public. And shortly after this, the Hawaii State Department of Health also confirmed and verified the authenticity of the original document in 2008. Yet after he became president, the rumors persisted and continued to go viral online so that up to 25% of Americans in 2011, in his third year of his presidency, had become convinced that Obama was born in Kenya and thus was still an illegitimate president. Even after he completed his two full terms as president, 
in January 20, 2017, the rumors could still be found online. Despite the authenticity of his original birth certificate, Obama never was able to fully put down the rumors that he did not qualify to be president because he did not meet the constitutional requirements. His legitimacy was questioned throughout his tenure and even after his presidency, mostly by those, mostly by those who had other additional reasons for not wanting him to, to be president. Anyway, Obama's story is a fascinating account in its own right in the history, uh, recent history of American politics, which has also been very quite fascinating over the past few years. If you've been, if, if you've been you know, dead or out of country, perhaps you haven't, uh, haven't seen all that we've gone through the past few years with uh, American politics. But anyway, Obama's story is part of the larger uh, past decade and some of, of that uh, fascinating account. Obama's story provides me, however, and this is the point, a unique way of introducing the Gospel of Matthew to you, chapter 2. Oh. <laughs> It'd be fine if it did. It'd be fine if it did. Thank you. Unique way of introducing the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, to you uh, this morning. For you see, Matthew writes his Gospel in the early years of Jesus' death, after Jesus' death and resurrection, and he's writing his Gospel to Jewish Christians. And these Jewish Christians in these early years after Jesus' death are having, wanting to follow Jesus, but they're having to deal with Jews who reject Jesus as the Messiah. And they have this fierce debate and this, and this strife and this sharp disagreement between the two parties. One party claiming that Jesus is the Messiah, the rest of the Jews believing those of the synagogue rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. Two of their arguments that Jesus was, could not be the Messiah was, number one, Jesus' sketchy birth. Jesus' sketchy birth. This is Matthew chapter 1. Matthew 1 is written in part to explain Jesus' sketchy birth from an outside perspective. It's historically highly probable, just looking at this as a historian, that something was up with, with Jesus' birth. Remember, Matthew 1 gives us Jesus' genealogy, which ends with saying um, that Joseph is not the biological uh, father of Jesus, and that Mary is the mother. So Jews, there was something going on here. There was something not quite normal about uh, the pregnancy. In fact, Matthew goes on to say that, yes, in fact, Jesus, um, Mary was not married when she had Jesus. She was unwed, right? And Jews are pointing to that and saying, there's no way Jesus can be the Messiah. Being born in a scandalous way, unwed mother, born out of wedlock, illegitimate child, can't be the Messiah. That's argument number one. And Matthew writes Matthew chapter 1 to counter that, to provide Jesus' birth certificate, to give the genealogy and see... No, Joseph is, in fact, from the, the lineage of David, so he can be the Messiah. He is from the line of David. And Mary did not, is not pregnant because of something sketchy, but Mary is, in fact, pregnant because God, the Holy God, brought about a miraculous conception. So Matthew 1 seeks to explain to 
those Jews who are trying to follow Jesus' Messiah, Jesus is legitimate. His birth certificate checks out. And trying to explain to the non-Jewish, I'm sorry, the Jewish unbelievers who are arguing against the believing Jewish Christians that this is the explanation for uh, the so-called sketchy birth. The second argument that the Jewish unbelievers were launching against the Jewish Christians were to say, Jesus can't be the Messiah because he was not born in the correct place. We all know Jesus. He was raised in Nazareth, Nowheresville. He's not from Bethlehem. The Messiah has to come from Bethlehem in order to be the Messiah. That's what the prophet Micah said. He was raised in Nazareth. He's not from Bethlehem. Ergo, can't be Messiah. You're following a false Messiah. So their argument went. So Matthew writes, Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2 shows the other half of Jesus' birth certificate. Parentage, Matthew chapter 1, checks out, check the box. Matthew chapter 2, location, fits. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, check the box. Of course, the Jewish Christians who want to follow Jesus as Messiah had a lot of questions. Is, really, is he really the Messiah? Um, the onslaught was apparently quite fierce. Is he the long-awaited promised king that would heal the world and make all things new? That's what it means to be Messiah. Was he actually born in Bethlehem or not? Mm. Matthew 2 is uh, 23 verses long, so it's quite long. We're going to walk through the four sections. It breaks down into four sections. Um, Matthew 2 records Jesus' journey, okay, his geographical journey. It starts in Bethlehem, section 1. Section 2 takes us down to Egypt. Um, Max, actually, do you have the map? So this is the map that uh, Max found on my behalf this morning when I sent the PowerPoint to him last night that said, Max, here's the map that I've created for you uh, that you can show tomorrow morning, but I forgot to attach it. So I got here this morning, and Max said, there's no attachment. So Max, thank you for providing uh, a map for us despite my, uh, my silliness. You can see uh, in, the, in the orange here down here in Judea, you can see Jerusalem and Bethlehem. Hopefully you can read that. The, the, it's a little bit uh, stretched, but that's okay. Uh, Bethlehem. Egypt is going to be down here in the corner. And I just kind of want to point out in the yellow up north in Galilee, Nazareth, no, Nowheresville, okay, about 60, 70 miles north. So the Matthew 2 takes us from Bethlehem down to Egypt, back down to Bethlehem, Ramah, and then way up north, to Nazareth. Matthew 2 recounts this, this journey in these four sections. Um, and just a shout out to Max, he's doing both. He's doing the sound, he's doing the slide this, this morning. Um, hey, you know what? Just another example of all play. People showing up 
to serve, not looking for the lights to be on them, right? Max not looking for popularity or fame being back there. He's not looking for a shout out, but just people stepping up at Moran Park. If, we're gonna, if Moran Park is going to go, people are going to have to step up and serve. So then, Max, thank you for being a fantastic example of that for, for our people. I want to show you four things in these four sections. I want to show you, number one, as I read these sections, how Jesus fulfills Scripture in each section. Number two, I want to show you how each section centers on a geographical location. Um, the, the, the narrative just kind of pivots around these four central geographical locations and what God's doing in each of those sections. Number three, how God sovereignly protects the vulnerable child Jesus uh, on his journey and his little family throughout the entire journey. And number four, how Jesus in this story begins to repeat, sum up, and fulfill Israel's history and destiny in his journey down to Egypt and back. We're going to talk more about this in two weeks. Jesus begins to fulfill as, as true Israel, as Israel embodied in one person. Israel, Jesus is bringing Israel's history and destiny to its fulfillment. Okay, so without further ado, Matthew 2, 1 to 12, the first section. This is the longest section. I'll read this for us. Let the words minister to you as God tells his story. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, ding, ding. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the Great, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled at all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet Micah, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the, rank, the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent to them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. And opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Okay, so first let's look at how Jesus fulfills Scripture. This quotation is from Micah 5, 2, verses 2 through 5. It's a messianic text. It's a classic prophetic prediction of where the Messiah will be born, where he will be born and what he will do. If we look at the larger context of the verse, which we won't, Messiah is going to be born in Jerusalem, uh, in, I'm sorry, in Bethlehem of Judah. This is 800 years prior to Jesus' birth. It goes on to say 
that when the Messiah comes, he will spread God's reign, God's kingdom, and God's shalom to the ends of the earth. That's not in the quotation here, but you have to go back to the original context and read it in context to see, to see that. Maybe take a look at that uh, later today. Number two, what is the geographical center of this section? What's the, what's the place that's mentioned in? Do we have it still up? What was the geographical center? Is it Jerusalem? It's Bethlehem, right? It's Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem's a promised town from which the Messiah will come, but Jerusalem's just six miles away. Jerusalem's the capital city. Jerusalem's the city of the great king. Jerusalem's the, the place where the temple is. Jerusalem is where Herod the Great resides in his ornate palace as king. But that is not the geographical center. That is not the theological center of this text. Bethlehem is where Jesus has been born, fulfilling Micah 5. Jesus born in Nazareth? No, he was born in Bethlehem, says the text. Another thing that's going on here is that Herod was bestowed the honor of the title 30 years before Jesus' birth by the Roman Emperor Caesar Augustus, King of the Jews. Herod the Great was King of the Jews in the time of Jesus. Now, he was half Jew, and he had no claim to the throne. He was not of Davidic he was not of Davidic descent. So he has no place to be the Messiah, but he takes the title King of the Jews. But the wise men come, and what do they say to Herod? Where's the one who's been born King of the Jews? Do they know who they're talking to? The one who claims to be King of the Jews. No wonder Herod was disturbed. Herod, you see, was a puppet of the Roman Empire. He was brutal, a tyrant, and mad. He ended up killing his own children, at least three of them, and his own wife on trumped-up charges of sedition out of his paranoia. And Herod understands that his replacement has arrived, but he has no intention of conceding the throne to the Christ child. So Herod launches his plan to destroy the true claimant, Jesus, the so-called Messiah. So he attempts to locate the true king of the Jews. The tyrant king of the Jews attempts to locate the true king of the Jews for dark purposes. Herod, of course, is in Jerusalem. The child is in Bethlehem, which is just a six-mile six Uber drive. That's a quick Uber drive away. And so the child is in grave danger. What's going to happen? Let's move on to the next section and see what happens. Section 2, Matthew 2, just three short verses, 13 through 15. Look for the geographical center of the text. Look how Jesus fulfills Scripture. Now when they, that is the Magi, departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. 
and said, Arise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I have called thy son. What's the geographical center of this text? With everything centering around, it's named, it's listed three times. Egypt, that's right. We're now down and on our way to Egypt. How does God sovereignly protect his son here? What does he do? Go ahead. Sends an angel, right? Bye. Gives a, gives a dream. Do we have a dream? No. Yes, we do have a dream. We do have a dream. Thank you. Okay, we have an angel, we have a dream. Good. God sovereignly mediates his, his protection and sends them off to Egypt with a word. And they escape from Herod's grasp. Of course, Herod the Great has no jurisdiction in, in Egypt. How does Jesus fulfill Scripture here, Old Testament Scripture? What's he do? He's called out of Egypt, right? This, the original context of this, this is Hosea chapter 11 from, again, eight centuries previous. In the original context, this passage is about how God calls his corporate son or his national son, Israel, his people, Israel, who's called God's son in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, Hosea chapter 11, verses 4, calls his son Israel out of Egypt in the Exodus deliverance. It's not a messianic text. It's not a prophetic prediction. What's going on here? Matthew uses it to show how Jesus, as God's ultimate son, is fulfilling Israel's destiny, repeating and summing up her history in his own person and work. Of course, what we'll talk about later is that Israel failed, right? Israel failed in her mission to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When Jesus comes on the scene, Israel's stuck. Israel's stuck in her sin. She's oppressed by the Romans. She has not accomplished and brought salvation to the ends of the earth. But Jesus, the ultimate son, the son who will bring the son um, along in its mission and succeed where Israel has failed, he sums up her history and her destiny in his own personal work. We'll talk more about this in two weeks. Again, like I said, Let's move on to section 3. Just another three short verses. Matthew 2, 16 to 18. Let's look for the geographical center here. And let's look at how Jesus fulfills Scripture. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or younger or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the Magi, from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. What's the geographical center of this text? Bethlehem and Ramah. Bethlehem and Ramah. 
Ramah's just north of Jerusalem by a few miles. Bethlehem's just south of Jerusalem by a few miles. Rachel died, if you remember Genesis, the book of Genesis, Rachel died as they were back on their way, headed to Bethlehem. She died uh, here near Ramah, near Bethel. She's the matriarch of the people of Israel. So she poetically is the mother of all Israel here, and she's weeping for her children uh, here, it says. The original context, this is from Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 31, verse 15. This is from six centuries before the time of Jesus. The original context of Jeremiah is that the Babylonian empire has come and has crushed Jerusalem. This happened in 587 B.C. Babylonian empire came, surrounded Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, uh, tore down the walls, uh, destroyed almost all the people, cast down the, the Davidic king, so the, mess, the messianic promise uh, through a Davidic king came into, um, into, came into peril um, and then exiled the remnant of the people, anybody that was left, exiled them and brought them out of, out of um, Judah and Jerusalem and brought them to Babylon and resettled them. Babylon nearly destroyed Israel, God's son, but God preserved a remnant in exile. And out of the devastation and out of the ashes of exile, Israel comes out of the ash heap and becomes a people again by God's providential care and preservation. Here, God likewise preserves his son, Jesus, from the devastation of a Roman, of a foreign, I'm sorry, a foreign tyrant. Jesus, as God's son, continues to recapitulate Israel's history. So we see Herod's rage and evil unleashed on the innocents. Messiah has come, but his kingdom has not yet arrived and rid the world of satanic darkness. Suffering still happens. Evil people still do evil things. Messiah barely escapes, but escape he does by God's grace and guidance through the angel and the dream. Let's move to our final text. Matthew 2, verses 20 to 23. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. And when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, uh, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. What's the geographical center of this text? Nazareth in Galilee, right? I don't know if you remember the map or not, but it's very far north, um, 78 miles north of uh, Bethlehem and Jerusalem, middle of nowhere. How does God sovereignly intervene to protect his vulnerable son? What does God do to sovereignly protect and guide and care for his son and preserve him? 
alive. What do we get? Another dream, right? Another angel? See that? Good. How, does, how is Scripture fulfilled here? What do you see? Max, can we get the, the second half? There we go. Jesus is called the Nazarene. Interesting. Now notice it says prophets, not the prophet. Plural. And that we don't get a quotation, we just get kind of the concept or the, or the idea that Jesus is going to be a Nazarene from Nazareth. There is no single Old Testament text that says that Jesus is going to be born and of Nazareth. Rather here, we have a whole swath of prophetic material. A whole swath of prophetic material that says that the Messiah will be of humble origins. Nazareth was a humble town. No one's looking for a Messiah in, in Nazareth. If you've ever read the Gospel of John, Nathaniel meets Jesus and hears he's from Nazareth and he says, what good can come out of Nazareth? Nazareth is where nobodies live. No, Nazareth is where nobodies work. Nazareth is where nobodies die. Matthew is telling us that Jesus, yes, he is the exalted Messiah from the famed Bethlehem. But he's also the humble servant. Nobody from nowhere. Old Testament scriptures had, in fact, promised that the Messiah would be the suffering servant, that he would be humble and of humble origins, that he would die on behalf of his people in a humble way, in an inglorious way, in a shameful way, and he would die on behalf of his people for their sins. This is your Jesus. Note that this also answers the question and refutes the unbelieving Jews who are saying, we know Jesus. He's born in Nowheresville. He's not from Bethlehem. He can't be the Messiah. A little of nuance and a little bit of explanation does the trick. He was born in Bethlehem, but he was raised in Nazareth. Birth certificate checks out. In conclusion, I'd like to make four applications, three applications for us today. Number one, Jesus fulfilled Old Testament scripture. The epic story that begins in the Old Testament finds its climactic fulfillment in Jesus. It's not just that, it's not just that Jesus fulfills a, a handful of prophetic proof texts, messianic promises of the Old Testament. 
Those are some of our favorite texts. And Jesus does do that. He does fulfill those messianic promises of the Old Testament. But would you, does it surprise you when I say and assert, though, that the prophetic material of the Old Testament, only 2% of it is that kind of material? Only 2%, 2%, not even 2%, actually, it's about just under 2%, of the prophets, of the prophetic material in the Old Testament is messianic proof text, is messianic promises about the coming Messiah that will be fulfilled in the future. No, Jesus' fulfillment of the Old Testament is much thicker and broader and more robust and more dynamic than that. It means that in him, the entire sprawling, epic story of Scripture that runs from creation to new creation is finding its apex and culmination in Jesus, the Messiah. He's the center point of all history and will bring world history to its destiny and its promised denouement. Then, though he's with us now as Emmanuel, then, Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus, God's Son, the Messiah, that promised King, will be with us forever in a resurrected world that will be full of ever-increasing and ever-ending joy and love. This is your King. Number two, Jesus as Messiah and Jesus as King of the Jews. We gravely misunderstand what that word means if we have only consigned Jesus to be a spiritual leader, Jesus of my heart, Jesus of my spiritual life, Jesus of my Sunday mornings, Jesus of my devotionals in the morning. If Jesus was only a spiritual leader, Herod had no reason to be worried. But Herod was worried. Why was Herod worried? Because it's a political assertion. Jesus has not just come as Messiah, as King, to be Lord of your spiritual life. He's come to be King of all creation. It's a political statement. Not Herod then or Caesar then, and not Biden, Putin, Xi Jinping of China. Now, they are not the ultimate Lord or ruler of the earth. Jesus is. And when he comes, make no mistake, he is going to go into full political beast mode as its rightful monarch subjugating all evil tyrants who refuse to bow the knee. Satan and death, last of all, but not least.
We miss, we concede way too much to the powers of darkness when we only make Jesus Lord of our spiritual life. Do not compartmentalize your life. Jesus is Lord, not just of your Sunday mornings and your spiritual personal life, but of all of your life. He's coming to reclaim all of creation, not just your religion. He refuses to be put in a box. Jesus, Messiah, means Jesus, King. Finally, know God's sovereign care, protection, and guidance of his son Jesus. Mary, Joseph, and the child Jesus were extremely vulnerable on their perilous journeys in an empire marked by idolatry and violence. But God protected him. And God the Father takes no less care for you, his children, in Christ. He cares for you with the same love and sovereign strength and protective concern. And he will guide and protect and care for you until you have accomplished the purposes for which he has called you and placed you on this earth. You are invincible until your work on earth is done. Not because you are invincible, but because he is. We also see that God overrules and thwarts tyrants and their evil designs and turns them for his own saving purposes. We can't, but God can. All of this is very good news indeed. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text. You, Jesus, are king. A loving king, a compassionate king, a good king, a gentle king, a compassionate, kind, caring, empathetic king, a merciful king, a gentle Messiah, a humble Messiah. All of that is true, Lord. But let us not make the mistake then to think that you are not king. For rightful king and Lord of the world you are. I pray by your spirit that you would do work in our hearts. Only the work that you can do. That you would do the work where we would give you places of our heart where we have not crowned you king and let you in. Our workplace, school, the athletic field, maybe our marriage, our parenting, 
our hobbies, our habits, our addictions. The way we treat others. Our sexual lives. Lord, be king, for you are king. In Jesus' name.